Well, we've been having a good time, I think. In the book of Acts, we have been discovering there uh, God building his church and watching him do that. So we have children in here that need to be dismissed for children's church. Yes, we do. So I've been taking our time, and we've been going verse by verse through the book of Acts, watching God build his church. And today, uh, you may or may not have noticed that my message skips the first six verses of the sixth chapter. Now, you probably know that those verses speak of a problem that began to grow in the new church. Grievances, whose roots were in the uh, diverse cultural makeup of this new church, and also that grew out of the very rapid growth of this new church. The story goes on to speak of how the apostles responded to that problem by creating a new office of leadership in the church, the deacon. Now, sometimes a guy will will take this verse and he will teach on the church government and the offices of church government. I'm not going to do that today. Uh, But for the record, I personally don't see a prescribed form of church government in Scripture. Churches today use a variety of terms and titles to describe their officers or their leaders. And when I think of leaders in the church, I think of servants, (laughs) because that's what they're supposed to be. But they've used a number of titles such as apostle, bishop, elder, overseer, pastor, presbyter, shepherd, and deacon. Now, while this has led to some confusion, I suppose, from people outside the church or newcomers to it that have no church background, the New Testament really, really only talks about two offices in the church. Regardless of the titles, it's two offices, elder and deacon. Elders are oftentimes called pastors, overseers, bishops, shepherds, and all that. And then they have the office of deacon. Both are addressed in Philippians 1.1, where it says, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Now, some of you who are here, whether you're here regularly or whether you're visitors, will probably ask the question, so well, uh, so who and where are our elders? And I will tell you this, you just look to your deacons. Because every church that I've been a part of, well, I can't say everyone, but almost every church I've been a part of for the last 32 years, has been governed by some form of elder and deacon structure, church government structure, which it according to what we do here is a little different, not better, just different. But those churches all ranged in size from about 300 to maybe as many as 1,800. And that's very important because it does take a little bit more complicated structure to provide leadership and ministry to a flock of 12 to 1,800 than it does to the size of our flock here. Now, here we're a bit smaller in number, but I want to tell you up front, and this is just an opinion, this is not a decree from Scripture or anything, so maybe I should step out of the pulpit for this. But the men we have here in leadership at First Baptist Church of Cambria clearly, again, in my opinion, clearly fulfill the qualifications 
of deacon and elder. And in scripture, the only real difference I've seen in those two offices is the ability to teach. And if you've been here any time at all, you know that our deacons also teach, and they do a great job of it. I'm impressed every week from the preparation that our deacons do. Tom does at my table, and and some of the other guys do at other tables, in preparing the lesson from Scripture and, and communicating the lessons that do that. One of the things that has impressed me most in my time at First Baptist Church here, it's been a brief exposure, I'll admit that, but one of the most impressive things to me has been the caliber of the men who serve here as deacons, as leaders, as servants to this body, especially in terms of their character and their commitment to Jesus and his church. Well, Thank you, Pastor Steve, but we're not handing out any raises this week, okay? (laughs) Well, I say all this because regardless of what we call them, our deacons here at First Baptist clearly are men of character that meet the scriptural qualifications of a servant leader in church. And today, my message is... (laughs) I wrote down here introduction. I'm I'm, I'm sure you've probably met him before, but a reintroduction of one of the original first seven deacons in the church. His name was Stephen. I kind of like that. He was a man who I believe helped define what a deacon or a servant leader in the church truly is. He was the first Christian, ultimately, that followed the steps of Jesus in martyrdom for the faith. Just as it was for Jesus, Stephen was persecuted because of his character and his commitment to truth. Now, there's no doubt in studying the New Testament that the two most dominant figures beyond Jesus himself are Peter and Paul. And we've seen so far in the first five chapters, six chapters of Acts, that Peter has been the predominant figure. Later, we will find out that in the ninth chapter and from there to the end of the book, the Apostle Paul is the main figure. But between them, specifically in chapters 6 and 7, the life and ministry of Stephen looms large in the church. Now from today's lesson that begins in Acts 6 verse 8 to chapter 8 verse 2, we get Stephen's story. And chapter 8 tells the story of how martyrdom, his martyrdom, affected the church. His story is a bridge between the ministries of Peter and Paul as they are recorded by Luke here in the book of Acts. And it chronicles how Stephen's bold stand for Christ and the persecution that followed that catapulted the church from being a Jerusalem-based ministry of Peter to the Mediterranean-based ministry, a missionary ministry of the Apostle Paul. One of the key verses in this entire story will come in a couple of weeks in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Now Saul approved of his execution, referring to Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. 
Stephen's death ultimately resulted in the rise of persecution against the church that caused it to scatter from Jerusalem throughout the Mediterranean area, something that they were told to do when the Holy Spirit came upon them at Pentecost. The apostles were even instructed before Christ ascended to go to the corners of the earth with the good news. And yet they were pretty much huddled together in Jerusalem. But when Stephen was martyred, that persecution arose and that scattered the Jews. And with them went the gospel. The impact of Stephen's life and his death are captured by this writer when he wrote this. Forgive me for reading, but I'm going to do this anyway because I haven't memorized it. Stephen was proof that the impact of a man's life and ministry has nothing necessarily to do with the length of his ministry. He showed that the efforts of one courageous person through a short duration can have far-reaching effects. Stephen's selfless, fearless proclamation of the gospel led him to pay the ultimate price for his commitment When Stephen died, the church grieved loudly because he was so vital a preacher and so deeply loved. Yet he did not die before accomplishing the mission God laid out for him. His death must have left an indelible impression on Paul. That impression on Saul of Tarsus, who later became the Apostle Paul, may have been the greatest impact Stephen's death had on the up-and-coming Pharisee because he stood nearby, witnessing Stephen's stoning, holding the cloaks of those who threw the stones and approving. He witnessed, Saul did, what the price of commitment to Christ might be in the face of persecution, a lesson that would serve him well in the years ahead. So we're going to start today by looking, first of all, at the definition of Stephen's character. I want to look at the apostles, first, their recommendation that they had made to take care of the problem that had been arising in the church. Acts chapter 6, verse 3 says, Therefore, brothers, pick from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. In other words, Pick seven qualified guys and give them the responsibility for getting food to these needy widows equitably. The requirements for those guys were they had to be men of good repute, full of spirit and wisdom. They should be, first of all, good men. Now, it doesn't say perfect men. It says good men. They're not sinless. But they had to have good reputation among the believers, the church people. Look at 1 Timothy 3 for some of the descriptors that later the Apostle Paul used to define men of good reputation. Words and phrases like dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain, clear of conscience, tested, blameless, husband of one wife, managing their own children and their own households well. That's how men of good repute were defined, good men. Secondly, they were also to be godly men. They needed to look for men who were full of the Spirit. Now, that was not considered an extraordinary requirement at the time, since being filled with the Spirit was considered to be the normal Christian life at that point. It meant to be living within God's will, 
being obedient and submissive to God's leading, not willfully sinning and grieving the Spirit. And then the third qualification was they were to be gifted men. It did not require them to be the smartest men in the church. Sorry, guys. But it did require that they be wise men. As in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5, it says that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. We don't have to look far to see that a requirement for wisdom is not made of men to lead in the world. We have plenty of guys who have no clue what they're doing in positions of leadership. But there's a big difference between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God that's referred to in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7. And it's referred to as a secret and hidden wisdom of God. Now back now to Stephen, we find in chapter 6, verse 8, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. When Stephen was chosen as one of the seven deacons of the Jerusalem church, Luke referred to him as a man that was full of grace and power. And back in chapter 6, verse 5, he referred to him as full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And since he met the qualifications for deacon, we know from verse 3 that he was of good repute and full of wisdom. Then in verse 8, Luke says he's also full of grace and power, doing great wonders and signs among the people. Stephen was clearly an extraordinary believer. He stood out. He was a, he was a good man. Verse 8 is rendered in, in my ESV text as full of grace and power. In other translations, render it full of faith and power. But if grace is the correct rendering, it would be easy to see why Stephen would be described that way. Grace means God's favor. And Stephen was certainly someone upon whom God had bestowed his favor. God's grace qualified Stephen as a good man. In that he was respected for his bold role as a witness for Jesus. Secondly, Stephen was a godly man. He's described as full of the Holy Spirit. His life manifested the fruit of the Spirit that Paul later described in Galatians 5, 22 to 23. It was a supernatural result of being full of God's Spirit. And then finally, Stephen also was a gifted man. Luke says Stephen was full of God's power to perform miracles in Jesus' name. And understand that aside from Jesus and the original apostles, Stephen is the only other person we see gifted for miracles, for signs and wonders. His calling and his anointing for ministry seem to be the same as the apostles. And we're not told specifically what kind of signs and wonders he did. But I would think as a deacon, he was probably exposed to a lot of the sick, the suffering, the injured, the hurting in general. And he worked miracles of healing among them. Grace, goodness, giftedness. That's a paradigm of maturity for any believer in Jesus Christ who seeks to be a leader. We also see that, so we see that Stephen is clearly a man of character, but we also saw that he was a man of deep conviction in verses 9 to 14. Now, you might wonder how a guy who was such a gracious, good, and gifted person could stir up 
enough opposition that some would feel it was necessary to kill him. Now, I'm going to step out on a limb here and say that maybe those signs and wonders had a lot to do with it. Because it was calling a lot of attention to Stephen, and there was causing, calling a lot of attention to Jesus. Because Jesus did just as the apostles did, and he spoke of Jesus. Let's take a look, though, at his antagonists. In verse 9, where Luke says opposition grew out of, uh, Then there arose from what is called the synagogue of freedmen, in parentheses, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, and they were disputing with Stephen. Now, note this is the first mention of synagogues in the in book of Acts. When the Jews were in captivity in Babylon, they started to meet in groups of ten or more for the purpose of reading the scriptures and worshiping. And those meetings eventually grew into synagogues. And some scholars cite the Talmud as saying that there were 480 synagogues in Jerusalem at the time Stephen was martyred. 480. Now the synagogue, or maybe the synagogues, that rose up against Stephen represented a number of regions from the Mediterranean area. And it was an area that was kind of a cultural melting pot that was in Jerusalem. Cyrenians are from Cyrene. It's a major city in northern Africa, which was the home of Simon, if you recall, the guy that helped, carry, helped uh, Christ carry his cross, Simon the Cyrene. That was Matthew chapter 27. It also consisted of Alexandrians from Alexandria, Egypt. Cilicia is a Roman province of Asia Minor where we find Tarsus, hometown of Saul of Tarsus. And it was a major city. Asia is a reference to a province in Western Asia, Asia Minor. And the capital there was Ephesus. And freedmen referred to people who had formerly been slaves but were now free. And these men had all been watching as the church in Jerusalem grew and gained more and more following. And they watched Stephen's ministry grow, and they apparently just didn't like it. I don't know exactly why, but I would guess that the growing number of Christ followers threatened the Jewish leaders and was a threat to their religious traditions. Jealousy of the attention and the growing numbers that they had. And Jesus replacing Moses as Stephen's hero even. And others are probably the main reasons that the opposition began to grow. Then we want to look at the argument. The men that represented this diverse geographic area were probably very learned and powerful scholars in their own right. But verse 10 says this, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he, Stephen, was speaking. Stephen certainly would appear to have been an extremely knowledgeable person in the Old Testament scriptures, in the Pentateuch, Moses' first five books. But the scholars that opposed him were apparently unable to refute the things that he was saying at that scholarly level. He was as educated as as they seem to be. See, knowledge of the Bible is a powerful, powerful tool for defending the faith or whatever you chose to, choose to use it for. 
I just want to stop and say that's another thing that has impressed me here was seeing the knowledge of the Bible in the people of this church. Most of the opposing people that oppose Christianity today are simply parroting objections that they hear somebody else say or have read that somebody else already said. They're unable to turn to a place in the Bible and document their objections. So for those of us who believe, even a little bit of Bible knowledge will go a long way to silencing those who oppose Christianity. Now there's some debate as to whether here the word spirit in verse 10 should have been capitalized. That maybe Luke wasn't exactly referring to the Holy Spirit when he said spirit, but was referring to Stephen's spirit or the manner in which he spoke and carried himself. And I suppose that's possible. But I think Stephen was not only brilliant, he was also charming. He was able to defend himself in a, in a gentle, non-offensive way. That, that's actually kind of a rare gift. Many of the people who defend Christianity are obnoxious about it. Are they not? I <laughs> uh, hope I'm not being one of them right now. But his, his non-offensiveness probably just stoked the fires of his detractors. Nothing's worse than losing, except losing to somebody who has a smile on their face. And they, they got a, had to grow accustomed to losing the arguments. And finally, we see the accusation against Stephen. His opponents couldn't out-debate him, so they had to turn to some other means of discrediting him, and it was accusation. Look at me with, look with me at verses 11 to 14. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. They had a secret plan. Verse 11 tells us their plan was to get help from others, to start a smear campaign and slander Stephen. We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Now, I find it interesting that they named Moses even before God. More concerned about Stephen damaging their religion than speaking against God himself. Now, Stephen threatened their religious way of life, and they needed to shut him down. So they trumped up some charges that were designed to inflame the religious passions of the religious Jews in Jerusalem. If you remember, they used the same strategy against Jesus in Matthew chapter 26. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward, at least two <laughs> came forward. Secondly, they stirred up the people in verse 12. Since the apostles were already being persecuted, it probably wasn't hard to find uh, people that were willing to unite against Stephen as well. It says in verse 12, And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before 
our friends of the council who have really had a hard time already with the apostles, haven't they? Thirdly, they committed perjury. In verse 13, the list of false witnesses the religious leaders had lined up were well prepared. The picture is of an angry mob likely dragging Stephen before the Sanhedrin, shouting accusations at him, venting their anger at him, for him, and for the Christian movement in general. And they had four charges against Stephen, all blasphemy. First, blasphemy against Moses and God. And, of course, there was no evidence that there was any blasphemy, any more than there had been against Jesus in John chapter 10. It is not for good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. But they told Jesus. Second charge was blasphemy against the temple. Misunderstanding the identity of the temple that Jesus said would be destroyed, they charged Stephen with teaching that Jesus would one day destroy their temple of worship. That was not what Jesus referred to at all, was it? He referred to the temple of his body that, he would, that they would destroy and he would raise in three days. Their third charge of blasphemy was against the law, Moses. And the fourth and final was blasphemy against the customs of the Jewish religion. Stephen was charged with teaching that Jesus would destroy the customs of Judaism. Again, Jesus faced these very same charges in Mark chapter 14. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. Well, that doesn't surprise anybody, does it? And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these these men testify against you? But again, the, the temple that Jesus referred to was his own body. Not the physical temple of worship that they stood in. He was saying his body would be destroyed and then raised up in three days. The Jews missed his meaning entirely, thinking he meant the temple in Jerusalem. Their their center of Judaism. And for anyone to threaten to destroy that temple would have been gross blasphemy. Referring to Jesus' resurrection, though, Stephen had likely said things about uh, somewhere along the same lines that Jesus had said. And his meaning was also distorted. So it's no surprise the Jewish leaders responded to Stephen's statements in the same way they did to Jesus' statements. And we still see similar tactics today. Anytime a theologian or, a, or even a politician makes a statement or has a, an accidental slip of the tongue, the spin doctors go to work, don't they? And a smear ca- uh, campaign begins. Both sides. I'm not saying there's just one group that does it. They all do it. And whenever honest debate is unsuccessful in revealing the truth... A campaign of lies and distortion is launched to try and undercut the other side's message and integrity of the messenger. Unfortunately, the path is followed by opponents of the truth both inside and outside the church. Again, I can't help but 
draw a parallel to today's presidential campaign. And not just this one. <laughs> Most of them I can remember in my lifetime have been the same way. So what? So what? What do we do with all this? Our so what is found in Stephen's reaction, his countenance. I like the picture that's drawn for us in the, in the New King James. Stephen is standing before the, the Sanhedrin, and all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. Imagine being dragged before the, some judgmental body and being falsely accused of some trumped-up capital charge. When the news guys, if, you, if that was you, when the news guys took your, your photo, and you know they will, do you think people would later look at that photo and see it in the Cambrian, in the front page, and say, wow, his face looked like an angel. Would we be able to muster that kind of calm serenity, that kind of composure in a stressful situation like that? Or would our faces show the marks of fear and stress and confusion, maybe even anger? You know, they say that our face is a good indicator of what's going on in our hearts. And I always thought I had a great poker face. I thought I could sit there and show nothing that was going on in here or in here. Well, I've, I have learned over the years I do not have a good poker face. In fact, it's not even close. It's not always accurate, but it does betray me nonetheless. If we're peaceful in our hearts, our face is likely to reflect that peace. But anger and fear in our circumstances is liable to show up here just as well. Christians talk about having joy, 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 joy down in my heart. <laughs> but their faces haven't got the message. I'm not sure how I would react in that kind of a situation. I know how I'd like to think I would react. But I'm afraid my voice would, or my face would betray me. <laughs> my brow would probably furrow. My 11 right here <laughs> would grow a little deeper. My wife, yeah. My left eye would look off into some screwy direction. My lips would thin. They do that when I get upset. They all thin out. Now you're all sitting there thinking, How's my face look when I get worked up? Yeah. Well, my face sure wouldn't look like an angel, I can tell you that. At least not one that I've ever imagined. But I would certainly hope that if I were in a situation like that, I would, my face would not betray resentment or anger about the false accusations. I'd like to think that it, it would be cool, but I, I know it probably wouldn't. I don't like to be accused falsely. <laughs> I don't like to be accused rightly, but I sure don't like to be accused falsely. And I hope I'd also be able to put, though, my trust in the Lord Jesus, just like my namesake did. 
And sometimes our demeanor, the way we respond and the way we react, can win more disputes than words. And if anyone's face was a benefit in an incendiary situation, it was Stephen. I can see him looking directly in the eyes of his accusers, unafraid. He hadn't done anything wrong. So he stood there, serenely calm, in the face of irrational hate, just as his master had done. Maybe the closest example of the way Stephen looked is found in the book that we're studying in our Sunday morning Sunday school. It's in Exodus chapter 34. And you recall the story. It's as Moses descends from Mount Sinai. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with him, he put a veil over his face. face of an angel. In Judges 13.6, we see another instance of someone with the appearance of the angel of God that's further described as very awesome. They put it in today's vernacular, didn't they? Awesome. (laughs) And in Matthew 28, verse 3, when the women at Christ's tomb saw an angel, his face was simply described as being like lightning. Now, the Sanhedrin sees someone standing before them with a face that is awesome, full of light, like lightning, perhaps. And this had to be a little unsettling for them, especially for those that had lined up to lie against Stephen. They must have been wondering if maybe the presence of of God was in the room with Stephen, which meant they were lined up against him too. Next week we'll get to study Stephen's great sermon that he gave here in response to the charges. But I want to close with this description of Stephen from Alexander White. He's a Scottish writer from the 19th century. He was a contemporary of Dwight Moody. He said this, Stephen was a young man of such original genius and of such special grace that there was nothing he might not have attained had he been allowed to live. His wonderful openness of mind, his perfect freedom from all the prepositions, prejudices, and superstitions of his day, his courage, his eloquence, his spotless character, with a certain sweet and at the same time majestic manner, combined to set Stephen in the very front rank, both of service and of risk, In all these things, and especially in the openness, receptiveness, and ripeness of his mind, Stephen far outstripped even such pillar apostles as Peter and James and John themselves. All these things made Stephen already all but the foremost man of his day, and as a consequence, the first man to be struck down.
maybe it's just my carnality speaking here, but wow, I'd sure like to be remembered even a little bit of something like that. Now we, we who are alive here today, have the opportunity to have that kind of testimony. Yes, even those of us who are older and whose curtain is about to come down at some point soon. And I would pray that we all might make good use of the days that God has given us to make a a Stephen-like impact for the Lord on our world, regardless of how small or how large your world is. I would pray that the world would look at our faces and not see my eye or the eleven, (laughs) but see the presence of the Lord Jesus in my heart. Pray the same for you. Would you pray with me? Lord, you've left us here as your representatives. You've left us here with the charge to take your gospel to our friends, to our neighbors, to strangers, to the ends of the earth. Lord, it's been said that the eyes are the windows to the soul. May they see in our eyes the owner, the creator of our soul. May they be able to see God in Jesus Christ reflected in our face, reflected in our actions, reflected in every way. Lord, may we take the gospel with us everywhere we go in that very manner to be proper representatives of you in our lives, in our world. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.